theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Norma Bloom in memory of her beloved father, Duvid ben Nussan HaKoyen Tehei Nishmosei Tzrura, B'Tzrer HaChayim, and thank you so much. It's also dedicated by Zalmi and Sarah LeCohen in uh, loved memory of uh, his grandparents, Reb Wolf and Esther Greenglass, famous uh, Makubal from Montreal, whose 11th yard site was on the 22nd day of Tevis. Thank you very, very much, and Mazel Tov for your birthday and for the new baby girl, Henya Lariches Yom and Vashanam Tevis. When we grow up, and we usually learn the story of the Egyptian exile, Golis Mitzrayim, and the exodus of Egypt, which occupies the three portions of Shmois, Va'era, Boy, and then continues in Beshalach and Yisrael. The ten plagues, the ten makas, always occupy a very central theme. But the way we see it often is that Hashem was trying to impress Parai and inculcate within him the desire to be able to finally let go of his control and tyranny and let the Jewish people free. But then the question is, why was there a need for ten plagues? Why these plagues? So the truth is, when you look in the Parshish, Hashem tells Moshe, V'yedu Mitzrayim ki ani Hashem, that the plagues are not just here to display prowess and extraordinary power. They're actually pedagogical. They're actually educational. If you really wish to define it in the most accurate terms, the ten makas were essentially ten lectures. They were ten shiurim. The physical display of each of the plagues was just a graphic way, because the best classes are graphic, (laughs) visual, right? Audio is very, very limited. When there's visual, we all know this. We know this with props. We know this with plays. The stories that you experience and you see, those are the deepest lessons in life. So Hashem was actually teaching the world how to teach. <laughs> so the ten makais, they're described as events. The water turns into blood. The frogs come. The lice, the wild animals, etc. All the way down to the last plague. But that's true. But... Be, be in, inside each of these spectacular displays of God's omniscience and, and omnipresence and infinite prowess, there's essentially a tutorial, a lesson, a shear. And that's really how one ought to understand these ten plagues allowed the Jewish people and the Egyptians and the world to evolve their own consciousness and awareness to mature our consciousness, from those paradigms that allowed the exile to happen, that allowed slavery to happen, that allowed tyranny to happen, to a newer, higher consciousness that allows for geula, that allows for emancipation and liberation on every level, politically and spiritually and psychologically and physically, on every level, individually and, and collectively, for the Jewish people and ultimately for the world. Maral writes in his Sefer Gvurus Hashem, which is dedicated to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Maral of Prague, he says that the Egyptian emancipation was not a one-time event in history. It introduced a new vocabulary into society, the vocabulary of freedom. He says even when the Jews went back into slavery, 
they still celebrated Pesach. He's basically raising a question. Why were Jews over centuries and millennia who were in exile, why are they celebrating the Seder as though they're going free? They're not free. Mela, when they were free, they were free. And the Maral says because, in his words, the freedom that happened then was an inherent freedom. The circumstances of exile don't obliterate that. There was a certain transformation that happens for eternity, even when physically the Jews were unfortunately again subject to various circumstances that were enslaving. And today, I want to discuss the first of those shiurim, the first of those lessons that Hashem presented to the Egyptians, to the Jewish people, and ultimately through the Torah to the world. Of course, Parai didn't budge yet. There were still another nine lectures that he had to attend until he was moved, right? Sometimes one, you know, one speech doesn't do it even if it's very graphic and very dramatic. But the first lesson, in a way, is the, is, is the, it's the genesis of all the lessons. You know, we say the haschala, the beginning, always sets the tone. The first one set the tone. And that's what I want to explore. But in order to contextualize it, let's remember the evolution of the story, very briefly. Moshe is shepherding the flock of his father-in-law in the wilderness. He's at a mountain. Later, it be, it would, it, it's called the mountain of Chayriv. It's called Har HaLekim, Rashi says, because of what would happen later in history, the mountain of God. He's minding his own business, to put it bluntly. He's doing what a shepherd does. A shepherd takes care of his flock. We spoke last week at length about that one sheep or goat that ran away and what Moshe learned from that experience, and what he taught the world from that experience, and why he was chosen as a leader. So let's now go to the next step. He sees this burning bush. He approaches it. Hashem says, you're standing on sacred soil, and he introduces himself. I am the God of your father, Hashem, God of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. I have felt, experienced the pain of the Jewish people in Egypt, and I want to send you on a mission as my ambassador to go set the people free. But Moshe Rabbeinu is very, very resistant to take on the mission. As Rashi says, you could see from the verses that for seven days there was a dialogue. There was a conversation that went on. Hashem was pleading and begging and convincing and persuading. And Moshe explained every reason under the sun and above the sun why this is going to be futile and unsuccessful. And at, at, at any count, he's not the right person. And finally, at some point, he says, the people are not going to believe me. Pare is not going to, nobody's going to accept me. And Hashem performs together with him three miracles. And these three miracles are supposed to assuage his, his fears. And what are those three miracles? The first one is, he says, what are you holding in your hand? And Moshe is holding a stick. God gave him that stick or told him to take that stick, which he calls the divine stick, and it's the staff that he's going to carry around throughout his journey in Egypt, his negotiations with Pare. This is going to be the famous stick of Moshe. So what is it? A stick. Drop the stick. And as he drops the stick to the ground, of course, it's morphed, it's morphed into a serpent, a nachash. Moshe flees. He runs away. There is, there is a serpent right in his presence, and it seems like a venomous one and a, and a dangerous one. So Hashem says, now fetch the serpent by its tail. And suddenly it's a stick. 
That's miracle number one. Number two, this is not enough. Number two, take your hand and put it in your bosom. And he puts it in his bosom, take it out, and suddenly, Yodim Itzeras Kashalik. He seems like a leper. It's completely white, depleted of the red, vivifying color of the blood. It seems like it's white, like it's like white as snow. Put it back into your bosom. He puts it back into his bosom. He takes it out of his bosom, and Shava Kipsara, his flesh is back to normal. This was miracle sign number two. Hashem says these two might not be enough. Here's a third one. You'll take water when you get there. You'll take water from the Nile, from the river, from the Nile Delta, and you'll pour it onto the earth and it's going to be morphed into blood. And Hashem says, between these three miracles, you're covered. In fact, when he comes to the Jewish people, he performs these three miracles. In the beginning, they believe it. But when he goes to Pare, Pare increases the labor. And as a result of that, the Jewish people now can't accept Moshe Rabbeinu. In the beginning of Parshas of Eira, they're short-breathed, and the labor is so intense, they can't listen to him anymore. Things became... From bad, they went to worse. Because Pari was so infuriated by Moshe's request to send the Jewish people out. And Moshe in desperation turns to Egypt, turns to Hashem and says, it's not going to happen. The Jewish people are not listening to me. You want Pari to listen to me. And I'm anyway not the person. When he comes to Pari, this is the first time he came to Pari in the Shemois, it was a failure. Pari just said the Jews are lazy, let's increase the burden of labor, increases the quota that they have to produce each day in their slave labor, the quota of bricks that they were manufacturing. But now in Ve'era, he goes back to Pari, Pari says a miracle, and of course, Moshe does the first miracle. First miracle is that the stick is dropped, he tells Aaron, take the stick, drop it, it becomes a snake, but Pari is unimpressed. He's completely unimpressed because his own magicians do a particular similar miracle. And even though Aaron's stick swallows up their sticks, doesn't make an impression on him. And that's when the series of the plagues begin. And the first one is, of course, the miracle, the third miracle that Hashem already told Moshe and Shmois, that the water turns into blood. So that miracle was all the way in the beginning. It was number three, and now it becomes the first of the ten makas. But what is the significance of this? When we read the story... You know, we could read it in a, in a very simplified and maybe immature way. It's like, okay, the stick will become the snake. That's impressive. You're still not impressed with me? Okay, put your hand in your pocket. You're a leper. You're still not impressed? We're going to turn water into blood. From all of the possibilities of creating these spectacular supernatural events, why are these three chosen? And the third one becomes the genesis of the ten plagues. Is there any thematic connection? So Rashi says some. Rashi points to some ideas, and the Midrashim point to some ideas, and in different Svarim there's different ideas. Here we'll discuss one element that pervades those first three miracles, with the last, with a focus on the third one, which is the first of the ten plagues. Moshe Rabbeinu, in his conversation with Hashem, saying, "I'm not taking on this mission. It's not for me." basically demonstrates and displays the idea that he's afraid of three things. The first is the people. They will never believe me. And we can understand what he's saying, because that's exactly what happens. They are so tormented. They have experienced so much disappointment and pain and defeat. Are they even ready 
for this journey from slavery to redemption. What's the expression? You know, you can take the Jew out of exile. Can you take exile out of the Jew? They used to say you could take the Jew out of Russia. Can you take the Ru- Russia? Can you take Russia out of the Jew? You know, I can take you out of trauma, but can I take the trauma out of you? They're not going to believe me. Here's another prophet coming to say, oh, 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 there's going to be good times. Sometimes when people are so tormented and traumatized, they can't think about anything else. I'm just trying to breathe. I'm trying to breathe. I'm just trying to catch my breath. You know, when somebody's choking you, you can't talk about emancipation. You can't talk about a vision of liberty. I'm trying to survive. Survival is my task. And it occupies 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It occupies every surviving neuron in my brain. In fact, trauma shuts down much of the body and much of the brain so that whatever is left should be able to be focused on one thing, survival. There's no space for anything else. Today we know from neuroscience, from scans, actually what happens on a very physical level, never mind emotionally and psychologically, and it's all connected. I once heard from Rabbi Yisrael Meir Laushli to the former Rabbi of Netanya, Tel Aviv, chief rabbi of Israel. He was a child in Buchenwald. And he was describing his days and nights. Somebody was asking him what it was like. And he compared it. It was so graphic. He's very, uh, he's very good with words. But he described something. It was just an unforgettable image. He said, compare me to that little insect, that mosquito, that roach, that bug, that has one thought. It's trapped. And it's just thinking about survival. And it will do anything. He says, I'm a six-year-old boy. In Buchenwald, no father, no mother, no family, no support. Starving, always starving. You know, imagine Yom Kippur three days straight with the nights and there's no day after. Always starving. Thinking about one thing, survival, survival, survival. You can't talk about vision. You can't talk about broader concepts. That's why it's so important to understand even somebody who may be living in physical prosperity, but if internally... They are dominated by that mindset of survival. There's nothing else. I freeze, I run, I fight, I flight, I freeze, but whatever it is, I'm, I'm, I'm just in a very, very narrow place. So Moshe says, are these people really capable of this message? Are they ready to become a people? Are they ready to go free? They're not going to believe me. Too much disappointment, too much pain. That's a good question. Moshe Rabbeinu is also afraid of himself. He says, I can't speak. I'm not the personality. I never spoke, not yesterday, not the day before. I don't even know how to speak. I have a speech impediment. And it's just not who I am. Moshe by nature was a quarantine, I don't know if the right word, was a quarantine type of person. He was shepherding the flock with serenity and tranquility. The Rambam calls him, Mifchar Minhenushi was the most elevated of spirits. He wanted to be in communion with nature and with Hashem. He was a meditative person. Moshe Rabbeinu was not a person who was by nature out there with people. That's why later you see the crisis. He asks Hashem to kill him. How am I supposed to lead these people? Moshe is a, a spiritual giant and he feels this is just, I don't need this for my validation. I don't need this for my ego. I don't need anybody to know me. I'm fine. I'm just completely fine living in a world without anybody noticing <laughs> It's what we call real confidence. Real confidence. I can do it. I don't want to do it. I don't need to do it. And I'm not the right person. I'm incompetent for this task. The third fear of Moshe is 
He's afraid of Parak. How is the monarch of Egypt going to respond to me? How is he going to listen to me? How is this tyrant going to be persuaded to change his reality, his MO, what he's been doing so successfully? How do you expect me to engage in a successful mission? So Moshe has three fears. The first three miracles of the Rebbeinu Shalom are not just three uh, uh, spectacular drama, fire, divine fireworks a show before the Jewish July 4th. They are really tutorials to Moshe about the three things that frighten him so deeply. The first is the stick. The Jewish people are called matos. The shvatim are called vaydaber Moshe al roshay hamatos. Shem speaks to the leaders of the tribes. Why are we called matos? Shvatim means scepters. Matos means sticks because sticks are branches that come from one tree. Just like the 12 matas, the 12 sticks come from one tree. The Radakosa says the reason Jews are called matas is a stick rather than a branch. Sometimes we're called shvatim is because a stick gives you support. You can lean on a stick. We hike with a stick. Elderly people who need help walking take use the cane for support. And the Radak writes that the definition of being a Jew is that you're a source of support for other people. So that's why we're called matas. In other words, to live up to the identity of a Jew is that I become an ambassador of love, light, hope, which means I become a source of support, of empowerment for other people. In this case, Moshe is holding the quintessential stick, the stick of God, through which he will fulfill the mission that Hashem is going to entrust him with to go liberate the Jewish people. And he will turn the Jewish people into Hashem's staff, into the king's scepter. What Esther says to touch the king's scepter, the Sharvet HaMelech. Because the Jewish people essentially are the stick, the scepter of the king. The scepter represents the tool through which the king executes his mission, his will, his plan. And the Jewish people, Mamlech Eskoyen and Vigay Kodesh, are the ambassadors of Hashem. In other words, the scepter of the king in this world, implementing his blueprint for creation, his vision for creation. That's the stick. But this stick is thrown into the earth. It's thrown into the ground. It's now covered by garbage and gravel and dirt and filth. And it becomes a venomous snake. And what Hashem is teaching the Jewish people is, what Hashem is teaching Moshe is, you could believe in the Jewish people, but you have to understand, even the most divine, sacred stick, Mata Alekim, if it's thrown into dirt, and if it's covered with gravel and filth, it could become a venomous snake. Moshe Rabbeinu had to have vision here to understand the people. When a person goes through such painful experiences, the person may appear as a venomous serpent. Moshe had that experience when he went out as a youngster and he saved one Jew who was beaten by an Egyptian and the next day a Jew informed upon him to para. So Moshe felt the venomous bite of the snake and Hashem was telling him, I know, I know. But what these snakes need more than anything else is that you shouldn't run away. You don't run away. Don't be afraid. Go and hold on to it and lift it up. And you know what will happen when you will lift it up? You will see that it's really a mata ha'elekim. And that will change everything. This is the first thing Moshe has to understand because a leader 
who doesn't believe in the people and doesn't see the potentiality in every child, in every student, in every person, beginning with themselves, of course I'm going to be unsuccessful. But now comes step number two. Step number two is Moshe Rabbeinu afraid for himself. What of my fate? What of my destiny? And Hashem says, put your hand in your bosom. And when, what happens then is, you become a leper. And the symbolism here is, it's much more than a graphic display of a miracle. It's a sheer. What's the representation? What is the idea of a hand stuck in a bosom? When my hand is in the bosom, it can't execute anything. There's no expression. My hand, my influence, my arm is hiding. It's tucked away into my bosom. In fact, there's a fascinating Pusik in Tehillim. David HaMelech says in Ayin Dalet, Tehillim 74, Lama sashiv yadcha v'yemincha mikerev chekecha chalei. Why do you withdraw your hand, Hashem? Why do you withdraw your right hand? Draw your hand out of your bosom. V'yemincha mikerev chekecha. Take it out of the bosom. I want to see your presence. I want to see your passion. I want to see your heart. I want to see your power. I want to see your influence. My arm, which represents my power and my vigor, my stamina, my leadership, is tucked into the bosom. And Hashem is telling Moshe Rabbeinu, that's what you're doing. You were created to change the world. You were created to light up the world. But your hand is in your bosom. And you know what happens when your hand is in your bosom? You don't become more alive. Actually, you're deprived from your oxygen. You become like a leper. And what's the halacha with a mitzvah? The only form of impurity where the consequence was, the leper had to be quarantined. Wow, is quarantine a curse or a blessing? Depends, in, depends for how long, depends in what context, depends what type of marriage you have, depends how big your house is. Huh? Depends with who, very good. Depends how comfortable you are in your own skin. Right? <laughs> Moshe Rabbeinu has a vision of being spiritually quarantined. Hashem says it's actually a form of leprosy. Because your soul came down to the world to achieve this mission. Take your hand out of your bosom. And when he does that, he puts it back and he takes it out of his bosom. Now he's fully alive. Moshe, you can't be afraid of yourself. And you cannot... Continue to believe that you're incompetent. I'm with you. You're my ambassador. And don't think that your ultimate perfection in life will be achieved by being quarantined. For you, that's a form of impurity. That's the second miracle, the second shear to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's interesting, you see the meticulousness in Chumash. Hashem tells Moshe, put your hand into your bosom. Take it out. He takes it out. It doesn't say he took it out of his bosom. It says, Vayetzia, and he was a leper. The hand was white like snow. The second time around, he says, take, put your hand back in. Take it out. Vayetzia mechekai. He takes it out of his bosom. The first time he took it out, he just physically took it out, but he didn't take it out of his bosom. Philosophically, he still believed in his identity as isolated. The second time around, he got the message. He became a transformed human being. 
And not because he lost his spiritual transcendent touch, but he understood that he is precisely the person who could serve as the interlacing link between heaven and earth. The third fear was the fear of Parai. The fear of confronting this great tyrant. Egypt was the superpower of the time. Moshe escaped Egypt because of Parai. And Moshe knew Parai, remember, he was his step Zayda. We don't think of it usually, but Parai was his step-grandfather. He knew Parai very well. Whether it was the same Parai, as it seems literally, or some say it was a new Parai, but Moshe knew the culture, he knew the palace, he knew the pharaohs, and he said it's not going to work. And here is where Hashem displays the third miracle, and this becomes the first lecture for the Egyptian society and for the Jewish people and for the world, the ten plagues where the water of the Nile becomes blood. To appreciate the significance of the first of the ten plagues, we have to learn a little bit about the Nile. A little geography lesson, if I may. The Nile River stretches over 4,184 miles. It's assumed to be the longest river in the world. Some scientists argue and say the Amazon in South America is longer, but it's close competition between the Nile and the Amazon. It stretches as long as the distance from Warsaw to New York. That's the Nile. Its story begins in the western desert of Egypt. You see, in the western desert of Egypt, the desert of Egypt, there's absolutely no water. There's no rain. Therefore, it does not lend itself to anyone living there, anybody dwelling there. They call it a Saharan playground for sandstorms and for locusts. You have lizards that dance on two feet much of the day, to avoid the scorching sands of the midday. That's how dry, that's how hot, that's, how, that's what type of environment it is. This is Egypt without the Nile, without the Nilus. It's little wonder that the ancient Egyptians venerated the Nile River. It wasn't just an important river, it was their ticket to life. It was their ticket to civilization. It was their oxygen. It became their God. Chazal say, Rashi says, They literally saw the Nile as their deity. This was their God. Because it single-handedly saved their civilization. How did the Nile allow ancient Egyptians to live and farm on a dry desert land? What happens? The answer is, and this is an extraordinary phenomenon in nature, the river flooded every single August. Every single year August came, and the Nile flooded the desert. And when it did, all the soil that was rich with nutrients was carried through the water, and it spread across all of the river banks, leaving a thick, moist mud, perfect for growing crops. So the Nile flooding each August transformed the landscape. From its cooling waters came exciting fish, perch fish that were bigger than fishermen. 
because of these cooling waters of the Nile. From its loamy riverbanks came mud that was used for bricks and papyrus that they used for books and for boats. So the river became a source of living. It also became a source of extraordinary wildlife. The famous crocodiles, the famous Nile Delta crocodiles, diverse fish and diverse birds, turtles, snakes, hippos, and of course, as I said, one of the world's largest reptiles. I don't know if you ever saw them, but the crocodiles of the Nile. That's why Yecheskel Hanavi in the Haftarah of Parshas Ve'era, he compares Egypt to Hatanin Hagadol Haroivitz Betoichia Oirev, the awesome, ferocious crocodile that dwells in the Nile Delta. So it became what you would call the umbilical cord for Egypt. This was the lifeline of Egyptian society. Each year in August, each year in the month of August, to this very day, <laughs> to this very day, they have a two-week holiday in Egypt. The holiday is called Wafa Anil. Okay? Wafa Anil, to celebrate the ancient, the ancient flooding of the Nile, which saved their civilization. And this was the vital event of the year, this celebration in August. Even today, if you go to Egypt, <laughs> there's a common blessing. May you always drink from the Nile. This is one of the great blessings an Egyptian will give you. Now, just for, for historical accuracy, the Nile no longer floods each year in August. And the reason for that is because of human intervention, of course. In the year 1970, not very long ago, the Aswan High Dam was built. And this huge dam controls the flow of the river. It allows them to generate electricity, irrigate farms, and provide homes with drinking water. But because of this dam, the flood, the natural flood each year in August that they worshipped doesn't happen anymore. So this fascinating river remains an invaluable source of life for Egyptians to this very day. More than 95% of the country's population depends on its water and live within a few miles of the riverbanks. If I'm not mistaking, the Nile that begins there travels through 11 countries. That's the Nile. But, and here's a big but... There was another side to the Nile. Let's call it the darker angels of the Nile. Because in truth, the Nile was a river of blood. It wasn't a river of water. We all remember the moment that Pari tells his entire nation, You shall cast every male born into the Nile. The Ramban Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman explains what happened. He says, it's so strange that when Moshe speaks to Pari and asks him to set the Jewish people free and Pari increases their burden, the policemen, the police officers tell Moshe and Aaron, you made things worse because of you, Pari is going to kill us. And the Ramban says, what, Pari is going to kill us? It would be like a Jew telling some Jewish leader in 1944, because of you, Hitler is going to kill us. Haven't you heard about what's going on in Egypt? And the Ramban says something incredible. He says it was all secretive. 
Pare came across as a very, very benign and menschliche king. That's why first he just imposed taxes on the Jewish people, then slave labor. Then he called in clandestinely the midwives and he said, kill the Jewish baby born when they're born, the males, without anybody knowing. Then Riramban says, he told his nation, throw the kids into the, throw the baby males into the Nile. The Ramban says, he didn't come out with a clear declaration of war against Jewish babies and tell his policemen and tell his soldiers, go take Jewish babies and kill them. The Ramban says, that wouldn't work. Why wouldn't it work? Because, he said, it would have been so unpopular. These people saved your life. Yosef is the one who saved Egypt. How could you betray the Jewish people that way? Second of all, he said, many citizens of Egypt would protest it. Third, the Jews would declare war. What did Pare do? He did something else. Clandestinely, he gave a message to all Egyptian anti-Semites. If you ever find a Jewish male baby, throw him into the river. The father and mother are going to come screaming to the governor. The governor says, that's horrible. Bring witnesses. And if you bring witnesses, we'll punish them. Of course, there's no witnesses. And a whole secret culture developed where every anti-Semite knew Jewish life of males, baby Jewish lives, are hefker. You could do whatever you want. You will not be brought to justice. They can go in the middle of the night and abduct a child. They can go in the middle of the day and grab a child. Most of it could be done in the middle of the night. This is what the Ramban says. That's why they told Moshe, you're the one who's creating anti-Semitism. Paroi was a good person. I don't murder anybody. On the contrary, bring evidence. Bring evidence. We'll put him away for life in prison. There's no evidence. This is how the Ramban explains what happened. As a result, there was a major lie going on. This beautiful river, and people go on vacation to the Nile and they'll describe, or you could see pictures or videos of this beautiful, lush, gorgeous, splendid river that triggers feelings of ecstasy and the splendor and glory of of God's world and of nature. The beautiful and splendid river continued to flow. Its lush, fresh, sparkling waters conveyed an air of serenity and tranquility and humanness and the joy of life and the vigor of life, a feeling of love and a feeling of relaxation and people who love each other spending time at these beautiful rivers, at the beautiful river on vacation. Sunrise came and the warm sun rays of the Egyptian desert mixed with the bluish royal color of the Nile. The Egyptians sat at their beloved river, as they still do today, on their beach shears, probably drinking pina colada or the delicious Egyptian wine that they had at that time, reading Schopenhauer, listening to Bach or Mozart, enjoying enjoying their music, some people playing frisbee, some people jogging and doing their exercise, some people just meditating in the water, reading a book, getting a suntan. It looked so beautiful. The truth is that the Nile was the propaganda machine of ancient Egypt. It was like the propaganda machines created by Stalin in the Soviet Union, created by Hitler in Germany. The Nile was a killing field. The Nile was a cemetery for innocent Jewish babies. The Nile eclipsed this great dark secret of genocide, of horrific torture of endless pain and abuse as the poor, small, 
angelic bodies of the Jewish children were cast into the Nile River. The sparkling waters covered up the cries, the moans of the babies, of their mothers, of their fathers, of their siblings. The river, you'll forgive me, was one bloody hell. It was no lush paradise. Of course, there was no evidence for anybody to bring a perpetrator to court because where are you going to retrieve the corpses from? The depths of the Nile. Where are you going to find the witnesses who saw this Egyptian monster throw this baby into the river and in the morning, the river is back to normal. Nobody could see the red blood that was really the core of this entire Nile that covered up this horrendous crime that Pari did not want anybody to find out about. This was the first plague of Mitzrayim, and it was a very, very powerful message. It was a shear. The blood, the water of the Nile turned into blood. Already before that, it's the third miracle that Hashem shows Moshe. The water turns into blood. What Hashem was doing is, He was simply uncovering the truth, unbeknownst to anybody, but Paroi and some of his people. Many Jews didn't even know the full truth. Many Egyptians didn't know the full truth. But the deep, dark skeletons, the deep, dark secret of the Nile, that it was a blood-soaked river, a place of murder and genocide, it rose to the surface. The venerated God of Egypt, the beautiful Nile, the source of life and prosperity, was a hiding place for unspeakable cruelty. What was the message? Hashem was teaching the entire land of Egypt as he was first teaching to Moshe. That, a lie, you're not going to be able to hide forever. Big, fat lies can deceive many people for much of the time. But the lie will never, ever hide the reality from Hashem. God knows everything. You can't hide behind your propaganda, your charisma, your charm, your fake kindness to eclipse your bloody evil. Para is powerful, but truth is more powerful. So when Moshe is afraid to confront Parai, there's no way of confronting Parai. Hashem says, truth is more powerful. Reality prevails because reality is real. That's the nature of realness, the nature of reality that it prevails. Emes may eretz titzmach, it says in Tehillim. The truth may be buried deep in the ground. The Kotzke Rebbe said the emes is bagrab and tif in the erd. Truth is sometimes buried deep, deep, deep in the ground. And nobody can see it. But emes may eretz titzmach. It's going to blossom one day. So with the miracle of the Nile, Hashem taught a lesson to Parai to the Egyptians, to the Jewish people, to Moshe, to the whole world. That's just true. The world is ultimately governed by Emes, not by Sheker. Yes, we call it an Alma de Shikra. We call it a false world and we all know why. <laughs> there are propaganda machines and people can be fooled and people can be deceived. We lie to ourselves and we certainly can lie to others. But ultimately there is a lesson here and that is Sinister schemes, falsehoods will not be able to be hidden forever. Reality prevails. The blood on the bottom of the Nile River, hiding, eclipsing, 
the cries of countless innocent children, whose only crime was that Jewish blood flowed through their sinews, will rise to the top and it will bring your downfall, even if not as fast as we would all crave. Because evil negativity ultimately doesn't constitute the core of reality. It's skin deep. It's superficial. It doesn't have real substance. Because the only real substance of life, the only real substance of life is that which is true. And truth, therefore, that is life. That is reality. There can be cover-ups for truth. They can survive. They can thrive. They can wreak havoc and pain. But they're substanceless reality. Did I just make up a word? But the lack of the substance, the lack of the emes, means that ultimately, when the covers are removed, it's going to appear for what it really is. It's a shell, it's a klipa, it's a husk, it's a sheker. And sheker, as Chazal say, and has no real foundation because it doesn't really exist. It exists because I'm denying truth. It exists only because I'm lying or somebody is lying or something is lying. And a lie at the end of the day can't endure because it's a lie. It may take time, may take maturity, may take a lot of pain too. But ultimately, it rears its ugly head and you see that there's nothing here. It's just not emes, it's not true. The Jews had to learn this. The Egyptians had to learn this. Pare had to learn this. Moshe learned this at that moment. The true color, pun intended, the color of blood of Pare and his regime comes to the surface and that's when redemption begins. It's not the last plague, but it's the first plague. It's the first shear that teaches people how to view the world, how to view themselves, how to view reality. To understand, as Mekenzechnish Bahalten from the Meibrishten, I can hide, I can go into closets, I can invent stories, but reality is present. Meloichal Existence is real. And at the core of existence is truth, is realness. I can't hide from realness. By definition, truth, the truth of reality, I can't manipulate just by giving off a false impression. And therefore, as a result, Moshe could now have the confidence to take on Parai. And how does the Exodus end? How does it end? A sea splits. What is it? Why? There's a lot of interesting ways in which you can get rid of the Egyptians. But from all the ways, Hashem again goes back to the water. Not the Nile. This time it's the Yamsuf, the Gulf of Aqaba, the Red Sea. But again, the water opens up. Kriyas Yamsuf. What does that mean? What were the Jews learning? All the secrets come to the surface. And that water, Mida Keneged Mida, Badavar Asher Zadu Alayim, that water that they used as their propaganda machine to demonstrate that they live in a wonderful civilization where there's music and there's art and there's poetry and there's philosophy and there's universities and there's great businesses and relationships and family life and a wonderful regime and a superpower, cultured and progressive. But that river of yours was really a killing field of innocent people. And that's the river. That's the same place that they end up in, in that water. That was that perfect symmetry of the beginning and the end. And no, it's from Betchilas in the first Makkah. And at the end, when the Jewish people ultimately 
emerge triumphant because they realize that they will not go back to Egypt, that the Egyptians will not be able to take them back even though Pirate came to pursue them. And now I'm going to ask you to take a look at your copies. If you don't have one, it's right here on the table, Ken Snemmen, on the bottom. Tough Memhe. Let me just tell you what this is. This is the sequence to our conversation. This is the next level of how these things work on a cosmic level and individually. Now, on top, you'll see this source sheet is a printout of a sefer called Maimare Admur Hazakin. Admur Hazakin is the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, whose yard site is actually today. Chavdala Tevis, the 24th day of Tevis. The Balatanya's name was Rabbi Shneir Zalman, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi. He was one of the great students of the Magad of Mizrich. He was born 1745, passed away Chavdala Tevis, Tovkov Ayin Gimel, 1812, while running away from Napoleon, running from Belarus, Lithuania, to the Ukraine, where he passed away, Mitzay Shabbos, Chavdala Tevis. Author, the Tanya, the Shulchan Aruch Harav, and many other works. And this is a sefer called Maimari Admur Hazokin Haktsarim which are brief, brief, short discourses of his that he shared in his early years and were written down by students, by disciples, by Talmudim, by Chayzerim. So this is from the earlier years. Later he would say much longer discourses and explain more. And Al-Turebbe was, of course, the founder of Chassidus Chabad, which stands for Chachma Bina Das, Wisdom, Understanding, Knowledge. Here is a little short mimer, but don't be deceived by the shortness and quantity. The title is Afela B'Mitzrayim, The Darkness in Egypt. Because it's going to focus on the second to the last plague. But you'll see here again this theme that each plague is a tutorial, it's a kiyadua. Chazal say that one of the reasons that darkness befell the Egyptians and it went on for days, the Jewish people experienced light, was levar harishayim kiyadua, to be able, as they say, to draw a line in the sand between the good people and those who identified with the Egyptians who wanted to remain their home, who somehow would have lap with the Egyptians. By the way, this explains why so many Jews were comfortable in Egypt, because Pari created a regime, it wasn't the Third Reich. Pari created a regime that's very menschlich, we're very humane, we love the Jews, we don't have anti-Semitism by us. First of all, the Jewish girls, we cherish and respect the Jewish boys. It's a tragedy. It's some monsters who are roaming the streets in the middle of the night. And we want to bring them to justice if you can only bring us the evidence. In many ways, it was still Germany in the 1930s where so many Jews said, you know, there's, there's some crazy people, some crazy lunatics. But, you know, let's, 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 let, let's allow the tide to pass over us and things will go back to normal. In this case, as the Ramban says, even Pare didn't declare himself as an anti-Semite. I'm menschlich. So Makas Chayshech allowed in that darkness to draw sand. And it says many of the Rishayim died during the plague of darkness. But he says, let's go to a, let's take this on a, from a, let's understand this from a deeper, more spiritual, psychological perspective. Ubir Hadover. The explanation is as follows. In every generation and in every milieu, in every era, you have the same phenomenon. He says, take the shmarim of the yayin. Shmarim of the yayin are the sediments of wine. Whenever you, uh, whenever you produce wine, you'll always have, you'll often see you're drinking wine and it's a wonderful drink and then suddenly, yeah, you come across all of these, 
all of these sediments at the dregs, the dregs of the wine, often on the bottom of the ba- bottle. These are called shmarim. Uh, sometimes they call it the yeast, the yeast of the wine. Because basically wine sediment, shmari hayayin, is made up also of dead yeast. And this is basically, in the, mine, in the winemaking world, I think it's referred to as lees. Anybody here makes wine? I think it's referred to as lees, L-E-E-S. They're formed when the dead yeast cells are left over in the wine after the process of fermentation. So they're, they're I believe, completely harmless, but, uh, you know, they're, they're shmarim. They're, they're, they're the dregs, they're the sediment. So he says, shmari hayayin, the sediments of the wine, the more the dregs, the more the sediments come together and they become stronger and stronger, they're building their own army. What does it really mean? It means that the rest of the wine is becoming more pure, more refined. Because when the sediments are scattered all around and isolated, they don't have this accumulative power, then they're mixed throughout all the wine. But when they gather together, he says... And Mizgabrin, they're like strong. Of course, he's using metaphoric language. They're not gathering together to create an army. They're just that dead yeast. But the point is, as it seems like they're gathering together, it just means that the rest of the wine is becoming zach. Zach means pure, refined, clear. And when the wine is about to reach its ultimate state of clarity and purity and refinement, what happens? The last sediments have to be emitted, have to be separ- separated, have to be extracted, have to be spit out. Even those very, very fine components of the dead yeast, which are not crass and don't seem so dense and brute and murky and dirty, but if the wine is to become completely refined, then even these have to come out of their hiding and be extracted. And that's when you know that the wine is really becoming truly pure and complete. Next page, you can turn it over. Those who deal with silver know about the process of refining the dross, it's called, right? The D-R-O-S-S, I believe. Anybody? No silversmiths here? You don't make wine, you don't make silver, huh? Okay, that's fine. You create souls, huh? Yeah. So, so the silversmith knows there's a process. You have to melt the metal, you have to melt the silver. There's intense heat, and it extracts the dross, which is like the sediments of the dirt, of the, of the silver, and when the dross is coming together and accumulating, it means the silver is becoming more pure and more pure. And when the silver is about to reach its utmost purity, then even the most hidden and embedded dross has to be extracted, which on one level could be frightening because before that it was hidden, and now suddenly it's at the surface, but it just means that the silver is about to experience its ultimate refinement and purity. Alderich Mashulza. The, the, the story of the wine, the metaphor of the wine and of the silver, is allegorical. It illustrates. Azai 
When there is an intense revelation of truth, of light, of godliness among the Jewish souls, and their divine souls are set on fire with the light of Torah and Avodah, and the more the light is refined and pure and crystal clear and allergic to toxicity and lies, what happens? By definition, the psoilus, the sediments, the dregs, the, the lies, the falsehood, the superficiality emerges. It gets separated. It falls mata mata. It segregates itself. It quarantines itself in order to ensure that the silver or the wine is so pure. And even those sediments, those dregs, that murkiness that is very dak, dak means thin, edel, subtle, which in another context wouldn't even be noticed. Right? If you're drinking a cheap wine, nobody even notices. The sediments fit in perfectly. But when you're reaching ultimate truth, when you're reaching ultimate refinement, it's allergic to even, what you know, there's, there's, there's big lies and there's white lies, Right? There's food that's mamish poisonous, and then there's food that's not mamish poisonous, it's semi-poisonous. So somebody, <laughs> I know that there, was a, there was a fellow, he went on a diet with his wife for 30 days, only health food. They got rid of the potato chips, the black and whites, the babka, everything. After 30 days, they decided to celebrate. So how does a Jewish couple celebrate? They went to a real restaurant. <laughs> And they ate like in the good old days. He couldn't sleep a whole night. He had stomach pains. Seven in the morning, he calls his nutritionist. He says, Hazois nami, lamanigar. Because I, for 30 days, I watched myself. And finally, last night, I had a normal meal like in the old days. That's why I couldn't sleep all night. His nutritionist says, over 30 days of eating healthy, you became healthy enough that your body protested. It protested when you're feeding it toxins. That's a very powerful idea. Of course you're feeling more pain because you're in a better place. Because you're allergic to the toxicity. This is true emotionally as well. Somebody who's emotionally sensitive for another person, a white lie, I don't even notice it. Min It fits into me. But if I'm a sensitive person and I'm a refined person, even the most subtle of dirt... I'm going to reject. It's going to make me feel horrible. I can't coexist with it. You have to be careful with this. You have to understand who you are. What may work for one person may work may not work for you. We all know there's people who can eat three pieces of cake, yeah, and they move on. And another person, yeah, I have somebody in my house. You'll have to guess who. They eat one piece of cake, right, and they regret it for a whole day. <laughs> why there's a sensitivity there other people are not so sensitive stuff stu- they stuff themselves more so he says when there is an ultimate ultimate light even the, the subtleties of, of, of lies are extracted are extricated and what happens is, just like in the metaphor of wine, as the dregs, as the sediments start getting, coming together and becoming strong and accumulative, they start attracting 
all the sediments, even the subtle ones. So it creates this whole strong army and you're afraid, oh my God. No, no, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. The separation, the segregation so you can identify what is clean and what is filthy, what is pure and what is impure, what is true and what is false, what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you, what is divine and what is the antithesis of truth, what is falsehood and what is emes. So as it comes together, it's now not hidden anymore. The skeletons are not in the closet anymore. The light is shining, so now they're coming together and they attract all the shmarim, once they attract all the shmarim, there could be a real appreciation of emes versus sheker, and this just means that you're standing at the threshold of real purity. In the crucible of exiles, he calls it the Kur HaBarzel, which is uh, Kur HaBarzel, the, the crucible in which you, you design the Barzel, the Barzel, the iron, of exiles, all the way down to Ikvisa the Meshich, which means the end of Golas, the end of Golas, the soul of Jewish history, the Ikvim is the soul, the bottom, as the footsteps of Mashiach can be heard. What happens is the Psylus Hagas Mikula, the most uh, brute dross, the most crass filth falls down completely. It's completely separated. It's completely extracted. But what happens? It starts attracting to itself all of its buddies, all of its connections. By osmosis, by, by, it, it, that's how it, it works in chemistry and it works this way psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. We attract our type. And then even the subtle ones get, get removed. So the Balatanya says, and that's why you're going to see an incredible phenomenon, which on one level is so painful and yet so healing. And that's why you'll find the following phenomenon. When a person is aroused, is inspired, is stimulated in a very positive way. In other words, there's a revelation of truth in a person's life. Intense words. A certain Jew in a particular place will be aroused, will be inspired, will somehow find within themselves, within their environment, a very powerful, powerful light. A new light has emerged in their life. And at that exact moment, the sediments will emerge elsewhere. Precisely for that reason, because it's, it's parallel to each other. As the wine becomes more and more pure, the sediments are falling away and emerging somewhere else. So before the wine was being purified... Everything was mixed together. You didn't see the difference. But now he says when one person experienced this type of purity, this type of isairus, so the cosmos spits out. At that very moment, it spits out dirt that now emerges elsewhere. And you will find this paradox in one area, in one place, sometimes in one person. There is a tremendous searching for truth and for vulnerability and for oneness. And at that very moment, he says... Somebody will be caught 
with the most heinous and disgusting of sins and will turn out to have been in a spiritual and moral abyss. And that paradox is so difficult to wrap my brain around it because what is going on? Or as somebody once said, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Which one is true? Here he's saying it's exactly the same thing. It's mamish the same thing. It even happens in myself. It's not just two separate people. When I'm ready for a deeper level of goodness, a new level of trauma is going to emerge. Because as I'm going into a deeper place, I'm going deeper into my soul, it's now going to vomit even those sensitive, subtle toxins that yesterday I could deal with. It's part of my system. But now I can't deal with it anymore. So it comes to the room like, oh my God, I became such a horrible person. Yesterday I was such a nice guy. Last week I was such a wonderful person. What happened to me? What are all these thoughts about? Says the Balatanya, don't worry. It's exactly the same thing. It's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Because the wine is reaching a deeper state of purity because the silver is now reaching its ultimate purity, even that subtle dross, which yesterday was unnoticeable, suddenly emerges. And what happens, he says, in Klal Yisrael, he says it so graphically, in one place, somebody is rising to such heights, and in that very moment, it reveals that somebody else, who may have been considered so holy and so inspiring and so bright and so illuminating, and maybe touched thousands, hundreds of thousands of people so positively, and it emerges that it was all a lie. Or at least part of it was such a major lie. There was a cover-up of titanic proportions in which innocent people suffered. And it can create so much confusion, so much mistrust. How do you trust anybody anymore? I can't trust greatest heroes, people, celebrities. Everybody was reading him, and everybody was inspired by him and changed the vocabulary in Israel. But it came out that under the Nile River, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of women and men and boys and girls who were horrifically manipulated and exploited and abused. And it's so difficult for people, for good reason. We want to trust people. We want to trust role models. We want to trust authors, especially if your kids were inspired by a person. And this is what Alter Rebbe is describing. At such moments, you need vision, you need clarity. You have to understand that unfortunately, our society is a society with so much holiness and beauty. But inside, inside our closets, inside ourselves, there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of pain, and there's often a lot of, lot of unresolved tension and evil. And when good things are happening, those things are going to come out precisely because good things are happening. Precisely because there's a wave of inspiration and authenticity that it's going to spit out and suddenly you find out that one person sadly fell prey to such horrible internal instincts that they could not control. Or as the chief rabbi of Tzva said yesterday, that he spoke (coughs) to him, And he told him, you maybe can't fix everything you have done, but you can do tshuva. You can apologize. You can become a role model of inspiration and talk about your mistakes. But he just denied everything. And in his words, Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu, the chief rabbi of Tzvaz, he said he was more addicted to it than people are addicted to drugs. And there was nobody to talk to. It's the sadness that teaches us what exists in each and every one of us. 
It's really a reflection of how cautious a person has to be. I once heard a story. You know, I think men will appreciate the story a little more because we have different types of Yetzirahs. But, but I'll use this opportunity. I'm sure somebody will make it a clip as well. I heard this story years ago, and I have to tell you, it was, it was so real. I love the authenticity of it. I heard this from a big rov in Yerushalayim. He said there was once a Polish tzaddik. A Jew in Polish, they used to call them agutayid. You know, holy Jews, tzaddikim. He had his community, his chassidim, his disciples. And he was an old widower. He was 90 years old. His wife has passed away. So they had a bacher, a yeshiva boy, who helped him. He tended to his needs. He lived with him in the house. And they were there together. There was also a Polish shiksa, a Polish non-Jewish woman who took care of the house. She cooked. She cleaned. She did the laundry. She was 75 years old. One night, the bacher tells the tzaddik, this Polish uh, rebbe, I have an errand to do for 20 minutes. Do you mind if I go? I'll come back. He says, yeah, gesundheit. The bacher leaves. Of course, it wasn't 20 minutes. It's like when your husband texts you, I'll be home in three minutes. It wasn't 20 minutes. He came home three hours later. It was a winter night. He approaches the house, and what does he see? This 90-year-old rebbe is standing outside of the house. He's shivering. He's 90 years old. He's cold. He's trembling. He's outside. He says, Rebbe, why are you outside? He says, the cleaning lady is in the house. It's Yechud. I'm not allowed to be in the house. He said, you didn't tell me you're going to leave the house. I would have come back right away. I would have not gone. He said, I didn't want to tell you. You also have a life. You also deserve to have a little vacation. You're also allowed to do something tonight. I didn't want to tell you. I wanted you to go. I didn't want you should feel imprisoned. But I couldn't stay in the house. So when you left, I also left. And I've been waiting here. It's fine. I'll be fine. The boy felt so bad. He felt so guilty. An Yid, a 90-year-old man. It's late at night. It's cold. And he was also a great Jew. So now I tell you the story the way I heard it. He says, Rebbe, do you think Yichud applies to you? And I'll use his words. You'll forgive me. He said... Yeah? You're 90, you're righteous, you're holy. She's in a completely different spectrum. Do you really think that Yechud applies to you? You could have stayed home. He looked at this boy and he said, and I'll say it in Yiddish, Bacher, Bacher. Ich mit mein Yetzirah in fünf Minuten werde ich jung und sie schön. With my Yetzirah in five minutes I become young and she becomes gorgeous. This is how an Erlich Yid speaks. This is how an Erlich Yid thinks. This is a real person. This is a person who understands the weakness of people, his or her own weakness. Not because this person doesn't have elements that are glorious and heavenly, because that's the uniqueness of a person. You're a ladder etched on the ground, but your head, your top reaches heaven. The human being is the interlacing link between heaven and earth, and therefore heaven lives in us, 
But earth lives in us. Paradise lives in us and purgatory also lives in us. It's conscientiousness. It's awareness. It's Yerushamayim. Most importantly, inner work of introspection and honesty that allows a person not only not to fall prey, but to become giants of what it means to be a truthful person. So the Balatanya tells us, you see in one place tremendous quest for authenticity, and precisely because of that, suddenly it emerges. As he puts it, somebody is caught. It's very, very intense words. Somebody is, is caught in, in, in misdeeds, in inappropriate behavior that is, is shocking and unfathomable in its magnitude, in its brilliance, and in how many lives it shattered. And he completes and he says, This is a process that happens in every era. Relative to that era. But this is not bad news, it's good news. Because honesty sets us free. It's what clears up our systems, our brains, our collective and individual identity from lies, from falsehood. The ultimate truth of Hashem cannot dwell in a place of lies. It can't. And as long as we tolerate those lies, even though it's nice because nobody knows them, ultimately we're betraying everything. We're betraying reality. We're betraying our children. We're especially betraying the victims who lived with the secret of the Nile but couldn't talk about it because such a popular rabbi. So imagine that pain. So for a society to flourish, for a society to be real, we don't have to be afraid of exposing infections. It's like somebody telling the doctor, don't do the surgery, don't get rid of the infection, I don't like to see blood. Well, you know what? In six months you're going to die. Chas We have to expose it. If we don't expose it, what happens? Then innocent people suffer. Children suffer. Women suffer. Married people, single people. And nobody says a word. And nobody is even allowed to believe them. So not only are they murdered once, they're murdered twice when they come back and nobody believes them. Can't be! You're exaggerating. Real Jews have compassion for everybody. Even a perpetrator. Nobody understands the deep demons. But when I see that there's more compassion to a perpetrator than a victim, that drives me mad. The perpetrator has good PR. The victim never had PR for a day of their life. That's why they were victims. Where's the compassion to every victim that was emotionally murdered by a perpetrator? So when a society cannot talk about this in respectful but real terms, what does it mean? It means that we're destined to fall prey to this type of immorality again and again and again. So the Balatanya says in every era there is this process of cleansing, of eliminating, of allowing the wine to shine, the silver to shine. The Jewish people are wine. The Jewish people are a good old aging wine that becomes better and better as it ages. What do they say with wine? Zikne talmidei chachamim, right? What do you say? Like good old wine. We're not afraid of becoming old. We're not an old people, we're a young people. And the Jewish people are silver, refined as silver. And the Navi says, an unbelievable postage, that Hashem tells the Jewish people, I'm going to refine you as silver. What's pshat? So somebody once asked a silversmith, 
What does it mean like silver? And he said something, you have to be a silversmith for this. I didn't know this. He said, how do we know that the silver is really refined? How do we know? How do we know the dross is gone? And the answer is you lift up the silver and you see your reflection. So Hashem says, when I'm going to lift up the silver and I'll see my reflection in you. That's refinement. When the human being becomes an embodiment of divinity, of godliness in this world, that's refinement. But for that refinement, I have to be honest with myself and not get ticked off and traumatized from the fact that my trauma is rising to the surface, but rather realize that it's an opportunity for healing. And I'm not just talking about one individual. I'm talking about everyone in my, every person in their life, me in my life. You'll see the greater you become, other things are going to come out. And you want to run away. You want to run away to Alaska or to the Philippines, wherever you like to run to. Emotionally, I'm talking about. Physically, it's also a good idea, maybe. You want to run away. What happened? The answer is, nothing happened. It's good things. God is giving you an opportunity to eliminate this dross. And he says, Vaharishayim, the Pasuk says in Yeshaya, Vaharishayim keyam nigrash refesh, Vaharishayim keyam nigrash the Navi says, this is Yeshaya Nun Zayin, Isaiah 57, that the wicked are like the troubled sea. It can't rest. And the waters toss up mire and mud. So this is what the Balatanya says. This is the process. The water tosses up. The water spits out, so to speak. The mire, the mud, the dross, the sediments. Why? in order to make sure that there's purity and authenticity. Now, just like in the wine, when all the sediment gathers together, you don't have to go and find it in different places. It's all together. Now you can just get rid of it. He says, that's Mashiach. It's not going to be, it doesn't have to be a long process. How do we extract all the negativity from everywhere in the world? Before Mashiach, there's a process where it all comes together. Suddenly it's accentuated. Suddenly it's highlighted, and it's scary. It's like, OMG, what's going on? He said, that's just all the ability to be able to expel it at once. In other words, when the real light emerges, it's very clear, this just doesn't belong here, and it's all gone. That's what he says. And that's what happened during the days of darkness. It was three days and three days, just a few days. And in one shot, in that darkness... What was darkness in one place was light in another place. And this explains the process of Choshech. We say, The Jews had light, the Egyptians had darkness. It's not two opposite things, it's the same thing. Because there is so much light, there's also so much darkness to be able to extricate the darkness from the light. And it allows the birur to happen, the separation to happen, all in one shot. And he finishes, This shall be enough for the person who understands. I guess for the person who doesn't understand, even more may not be enough. But Vedaila Maven, for the person who understands, as the wonderful people sitting in this room, this will be enough. I wish you all a wonderful and bright week. His suicide note said, I'll meet you at the base tent. Listen, when he's innocent. He, was, he said he was innocent. Listen. Well, no, we're not even judge. We're not judging, no, but there's trauma not. now for their family. 
Of Even course listen, there is. The trauma is very but, real for their family. The rabbi of Svas heard 22, 22 testimonies on this tape. Exactly. So what? Exactly. I mean, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's inappropriate it's to say that exactly. because yeah. there's, there's, there's women exactly. who were murdered. Exactly. So we have to be sensitive to, to them exactly. first. Exactly. Number one. Exactly. Exactly. But then there's the real trauma. 22 people. You think everybody invented a story? That's only what came forth to one rabbi. We don't even know what else Another 50 people. But then there's... 22 should never feel like they... That's unbelievable. People are doubting them. We don't know. They didn't kill him. They killed themselves. No, but then there's the trauma also of his family. His children. Yes, his wife. It's no, his wife. No, that's children. true. It's true. And also Never. For someone to take their life. One person is... He has no support system. I never heard anybody taking his side. Like, nothing. If he was innocent, like you may think, he should have had backing. He has zero backing. What do you think? Nothing. There's re record, no recording. We don't want to. I had you. I know, but what? He told a woman. You think a Jewish woman made up a recording with his voice telling her that if anybody finds out, I'm going to commit suicide. When people say maybe it's a libel, maybe someone had a vendetta. If you have, if you have one woman, you you could say that. I told them. When you have, when you have dozens. One second. There's a young girl who really came out and told over the story. Every person deserves a trial. Every person deserves a trial. But when there's victims, when there's victims who are now being harassed, that they are the ones who killed them, that's a heinous crime. Not just were they murdered once. Now they're be they're being accused of murdering when they were murdered. Welcome. We missed you. Just realize that your absence is noted, and your return and your return is noted. Her healthy return. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Amen. 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 Thank you. We go through these pains, we can't breathe, we can't breathe. And the Navi Yecheskel compares Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim to birth and the period before that to labor. And the biggest thing, in, 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 not the biggest, one of the big things in labor and delivery is breathing, right? I don't have to... Uh... Right, my husband's a, a, a delivery person for... <laughs> no, he's an obstetrician. Yeah. 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 He, he calls himself a delivery boy. He calls himself a delivery boy. So now I do... I like that, delivery boy. And a delivery girl sometimes also. Harvard graduate, but he's a delivery boy. That's good. We like that. We like that. We like humble doctors who are just delivery boys. So when Moshe tells Hashem the Jews couldn't listen to me because of short breath, it's basically saying the labor won't be able to happen to happen and morph into birth. There won't be that transition because you have to be able to breathe because breathing is what allows the expansiveness and the space for delivery. Yes, yes. And 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 Paroi tells the midwives. That when the woman is sitting, the mashber, which is the birthing yeah. stool, right. right? Kill, kill the male ch right. child. Anyway. Mashber means breakdown, and mashber means birthing stool. Right. Because on one level it can be a breakdown, right. and another level, if you learn to breathe through it in the proper way, it can be birth to a new reality. And also, one more. Pyra didn't want to let that birth. Right. We want the death to happen before birth. Yeah. One more thing. I'm just adding my own sort of like piecing the pieces together. Yeah. When we are in crisis and we can't breathe and we can't, like yes. you said in the very yes. beginning, you can't even think. Yes. So how do you find Hashem in that moment where you can? It's very hard. 
So, so at that moment, you can't force yourself to be in a place that you're not. But you could breathe through that. I can breathe through the fact that I have to accept that certain things are really, really hurtful now and painful now, and I can't really deal with it at the moment. That itself could become a source of awareness. So not a trap and a prison, but a catalyst for growth. Right. The hallway. Yeah, so Moshe says they couldn't listen. Rashi says it's like short breath. Right. A panic attack. Huh? Yeah. No, but it, I see a beautiful connection, which the rabbi just mentioned. You know? Yes, yes. You see, but, is birth. But still, when you're in it and you can't breathe, and you're in it, you have it's so hard to survival. It's so hard. You have to respect that also. But you are a doula. You She's a delivery girl. He's a delivery boy, and you're a delivery girl and a yoga instructor. But I still try to teach Torah to my yoga students. I'm trying to find that peace where the labor, the breath, grabbing your amuna when it's so hard. Yeah. Like so I'm trying to find that peace. Yeah. So I'm, that's why amuna is the idea. That I, I can't wrap my brain around it. Right. I can't just come right. to terms with it easily. Right. I have to I have to be okay with the fact that I'm not okay. Right. That's hard. Yeah. We don't like that. To remember that that breath is I'm sorry if it was Rabbi Jacobson who said this, because I'm always chesed. <laughs> Is half is 21? After mine, man. 21? It's 21, and what's in, in oxygen? That Hashem pursues us with oxygen. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.